you're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Zach Bechtold and Matt Franks. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and check us out online at beardedtheologians.com. You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. In, in today, as we continue our series uh, on Lent, we have a very special guest with us. We have the Reverend Neil Christie, who works with the Board of Church and Society as the um, Associate General Secretary, uh, leading up education and leadership formation. And that's a fun mouthful. Um, <laughs> Neil, we're, we're, we're so glad to have you with us. Um, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, Zach. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to both of you, to Zach and Matt, for inviting me to be part of this. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. This is my first time doing this kind of an, uh, a dialogue conversation. And so this is really fun for me. So I, I appreciate it. Um, a little bit of background about myself. So I'm a United Methodist elder. Uh, I uh, was ordained in the Greater New Jersey Conference and served churches there for a number of years in rural churches, two-point charges with cows on one side, alfalfa on the other. So I've never served in an urban church or larger urban church. Um, I was a hospital chaplain in a trauma hospital for over a year uh, in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, connected to Rutgers University. Most of my patients were, uh, it was blood disorders, so dialysis, tuberculosis, AIDS, HIV. And uh, I'd done some urban ministry, some prison ministry before coming to church and society. In a way, for me, it was coming full circle. I was an intern here back in, when I was in college. And um, uh, back in 1980, doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but it was a while back, I guess, 1985. And that led to another internship I got some exposure to the general church, the connectional church, but I felt I didn't feel called to it. Um, when I went to seminary, I was interested in studying law and social ethics. I felt called to ordain ministry, especially to the administration of the sacraments. And being you, the sacraments is really is a means of grace and connecting uh, people to justice. And so for me, that was that's what brought me to local church ministry. But um, then I, you know, I thought further and I was discerning further where I was felt called and I got, I literally did get called by church and society, asked me to apply for a position. Um, they had my name from, I guess, years before. And so for six years, I directed our program called the United Methodist Seminar Program on National International Affairs, which is this experiential education. So it's all participatory, uh, uh, popular style education on social justice issues where we design seminars based on what the, where the group is at and, and taking them where they are. And so everything from immigration to hunger and homelessness, working with the unhoused, working around uh, addictions issues and creating educational programming. Um, my colleague, uh, Jim Winkler, became the general secretary. After he became the general secretary at that time, he made me one of the assistant general secretaries. And our general secretary, Susan Henry Crow, has maintained me in that position. So I've been here through actually three general secretaries and have expanded some of my work. So um, I, you, it is a mouthful. Educational leadership formation. My staff and I, my colleagues and I, the interns I'm blessed to work with, we do a lot of things. So we work with our seminar program. I oversee that. I oversee our, um, all our internship programs and our internship staff. 
our work in the central conferences in Africa, the Philippines and in Europe, Eurasia, Russia. And increasingly, I spend time educating on the social principles in university settings outside the United States. I, I regularly at Africa University, regularly teaching in our seminary in Moscow, and then in the Far East in, um, in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and in the Philippines. So I do a lot of global work on education and uh, um, priority for me right now is the revision of the social principles, which is a process that began actually uh, eight years ago, but was reaffirmed at General Conference in 2016. And so that's a long process. Um, so the document that we're talking about today may not look the way it does in, in another two, three years. And I hope it doesn't. I'm hoping that there's some changes that they'll be accepted by General Conference. But um, my heart is in in seeing how people of faith, United Methodists, and our ecumenical sisters and brothers approach document like the social principles and the values that that uh, we affirm, you know, as a community. So I get to kind of create quite a bit. Um, my responsibilities are pretty clear, but I'm very, very, very privileged and I've given a lot of freedom to kind of explore new relationships and, and um, you know, and to see where the spirit will lead the agency. So we have great colleagues here, civil and human rights, peace with justice, healthcare, gender justice, children's advocacy. Um, I get to work with sort of every, all of our colleagues and not to work with one portfolio. And then finally, uh, I work with the racial ethnic caucuses in the United Methodist Church. So whether it's the Native American caucus or Black uh, Methodist for Church Renewal, Armarcha, working with Latino caucus, I work to support their their justice ministries as well. So that's a, that's a general overview of what I get to do. Wow. Um, so as you you know you have a lot on your plate in a sense of a, a job. Um, you know as you think about uh, these social principles, like if you had to put them in a nutshell to explain to somebody who wasn't a part of the Methodist Church or maybe a cradle Methodist that never heard about the the social principles, sure. what what would you uh, share with the the person? So if I were to, if you were a cradle Methodist, I'd say, okay, what do you, where did you learn your principles? Like, who did you learn your pr first principles from? Uh, I mean, was it in, in, did you learn from a parent, a grandparent? Um, if you're a churchgoer from a Sunday school teacher, uh, a neighbor, a teacher, uh, you know, where did you learn about what, right from wrong, good from bad? What's better from worse? Um, and where, were there times in your life where you had a firm conviction or a belief that was challenged and you began to change your mind? And the fact that you changed your mind changed your attitude and your behaviors? Well, that's what the social principles in part are about. I mean, the social principles are a public expression of our personal faith. Um, I might argue our, our faith is never private. So it's intensely personal, but it's also intensely public. So the social principles are social. They have to do with um, how we live out our personal faith in a, in a social context. I would say that they are the best um, thinking of the General Conference of the United Methodist Church for this time, recognizing that our opinions will uh, adapt, they will change based on the circumstances. An example would be um, arguments around uh, uh, divorce. The United Methodist Church was formed in 1968 to 1972. We had a very firm um, position on divorce where we act, were quite condemnatory. And you can see in our social principles how 
language around human relationship, marriage, um, and then certainly divorce has uh, changed with our theological understanding, our experience, um, and the cultures that we live in. So our position on divorce at this point is a very, might or I'd argue, a very pastoral approach to understanding relationship. Um, it's theologically grounded, but ultimately it's a, th it's a pastoral approach to it. I'd say that the social principles are a, they're an outgrowth of our social creed, which was um, written in 1908, the first social creed, and then adopted again by uh, subsequent general conferences, where we talk about the primacy of uh, economic justice, where we talk about the role of women in society, safeguarding the health and welfare of women. This is a direct quote from that 1908 social creed. Um, because, we, because women are at the center of society. If we don't look at the health and welfare of women, we will not really be able to maintain the social fabric. So uh, putting an end to child labor, um, guaranteeing one day uh, in seven is a Sabbath day. Thank God for us, but the, Methodists, the Methodists are what brought us the, the weekend. We didn't have a weekend. We didn't, we didn't really care very much about child labor as a, a society. Some of us did, but the social principles articulated those beliefs and those practices that will be part of our faith and how do we express them in the public square? So I think there, there are positions around belief. They also um, uh, tell us something about how we belong. So when you look at the social principles, you see that they're separated into six different distinct sections that are intersectional, oftentimes intersectional. You've got the natural world, the nurturing community, the social community, the political community, the economic community, and world community. And in each one, it's not just about where, what we believe or how we ought to behave. They also say something about what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to be a human person with digni inherent dignity, right? And what is it, regardless of the culture, regardless of our social status, how do you belong in community? And when I think about that, when I think about the social principles as statements of belief, statements of behavior, and statements of belonging, it leads me to understand, well, okay, here's this document that is an outgrowth of the 1900s social creed, really written in 1972, has been um, adapted, edited, each quadrennium, every four years until 2016. So we have this document. Well, what does it mean? What's the relevance for cradle uh, Methodists that are in um, Oklahoma or California or New Jersey or in Kinshasa or in Manila? And I wanna, I wanna share with you that there's not one, one um, from my perspective, there's not one United Methodist that the social principles are written to. We have 12.8 million members in the church. Um, we have 50 of the delegates that, that approve these social principles every four years, 58% come from the United States, 30% come from Africa, 4.6% come from Europe, and 5.8% come from the Philippines. And so there's not one United Methodist. And yet, and yet, while we sing different hymns, while we read scripture differently, our liturgies may adapt to culture. We have one set of social principles. For all these millions of United Methodists living across culture, across continent, different social geographic histories. It is fascinating to me. It's a miracle of the church in some ways that we have one set of social principles. 
I mean, the only other church that comes close to something like that is the Catholic Church, which is the only global church with Catholic social teaching. Difference is that tends to be reserved not for the clergy, not for the laity. Social principles were written predominantly by the laity. They're voted on predominantly by, by the laity. That was the first social principle. So it's a fascinating um, document as a whole, uh, even without going into the specifics of what's covered or not covered. The fact that they even exist to me is really, frankly, a small miracle. 2016, 2018, uh, 2016, excuse me, General Conference approving them, 2018 today, when you've got, you know, churches that split, um, new emergent communities, charismatic churches that grow, the fact that we have one social principles to me is nothing short of a miracle. It really right. Oh, go ahead. Well, and that's really kind of my question. You know, we, we have enough culture shift and different cultures just within within United States. And, and you deal with this on a um, on a global level. You know, as you said, we're, we, we really are a global church. And, and so how do how do you approach that when you go to the Philippines, which are a little more Western? I know that. But maybe even Eurasia and, and Africa, when you when you go to these places that don't I mean, we can't see eye to eye on culture here, but when it's so much different uh, culture-wise and we bring this one set of social principles in, how, how do we begin to work within that, uh, not only, you know, on a, on a cultural level here in the States, but on a global level? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I'll give you an example. I was in uh, Angola a few years ago, and Bishop uh, Gaspar Domingo, she's the bishop there, and he's a younger bishop. Um, at the time, he was, you know, he had just turned 40. <laughs> so he was a fairly young bishop. And he said to me, and I was doing a training for all the clergy in the conference. So there were maybe three or 400 clergy in the room. And he said to me before we began, he said, Neil, remind them of what it means to be a United Methodist. And I said, Bishop, what do you mean by that? And he said, they are being tempted to go in every kind of direction there is. All the new church growth schemes that we think about in the United States, it's there, right? You've got, again, charismatic movements that are growing, but that begin a church, but they don't ever complete a church. You know, may begin a community, but the community disintegrates. It, it's, it, it doesn't hold together. He said, we have a distinct Wesleyan heritage that is personal and public. And I want you to reaffirm that even as you talk about the social principles. Be proud of the history we have. Um, and, and then and, and say these are distinctly united marks of Methodism. Social principles are one of the marks of what it means to be a United Methodist. So I'll never forget that because it was important for him to, and I've heard this from other bishops in Africa, is like, this is our contribution. This is part of what makes us distinctly United Methodists. They've said the same thing in Switzerland and in Austria, where we're a minority church, where we have several thousand members, but not compared to the Catholic or Lutheran church, we're really, we're the non-state church, right? And so how do we approach, how do we approach these other larger churches with a particular identity? The social principles are how we do it. Um, now, how do you make the social principles relevant in a particular, con in a given context. I think the way that I do that, it depends on the situation. If we are in the Philippines, there'll be, there'll be a, I think, a significant interest in issues like 
because of the realities in the Philippines right now, and the church is facing these realities with a, a very strong uh, president who, where there is extra judicial killings or targeting of the press and uh, religious leaders um, who don't support many of the government policies. Um, uh, there is conflict between Muslims and Christians, and so especially in the Muslim South and, and the Christian North and Middle Part Islands, there is uh, deep poverty. Um, there is rapid development, um, economic development, um, the effects of free, free trade, climate justice, climate change is a reality that every small community is dealing with. So it's not some abstraction. You have entire communities being washed away um, because of, of dramatic shifts in climate and, and the number of typhoons that have uh, increased over the past decade. Um, uh, so you have a large migrant community that brings money back home, but who are, are located in parts of the Middle East and in North Africa and the United States. And they're dependent upon those jobs to, for their economy to keep the economy back home and Philippines intact. So these are some of the social realities they're dealing with. So we, we're very conscious when we teach the social principles. What, what's your reality? You know, what are you living with? And then the benefit of the social principles is it doesn't deal with like one issue um, from from a globe from a, in a sense of globalized perspective. It breaks it down. It looks at the parts. So if we look at the natural world section of the social principles, um, people can relate to it. They can relate to it because it talks about climate justice. It talks about food justice and food security. We ask people um, to identify what are the positions of the church that they would affirm they would agree with or not agree with. We ask them to look at whose interests the social principles reflect. Do they reflect their interests? If they don't reflect their interests, whose interests do they reflect? We ask them questions like, the values in, in social principles. What are the values that are um, lifted up in the social principles? And are they values things like hospitality, um, uh, dignity, um, justice, uh, uh, love, which I'd say is a value, um, honesty. <laughs> what are the values that are relevant in a, a specific social principle? And then we look at whether, whether where the social principle seeks to meet a human need or a needing God's creation. And so we ask these kinds of questions. And then we will, again, based on people's experience, we see how they enter into dialogue with the text, with the text. So that's one way that I begin. Um, and then, of course, we look at the biblical pieces. We look at, uh, if we're looking at the, the, uh, the natural world, of course, we're going to look at Genesis. We're going to take a look at what it says in Revelation, what it says in some of the epistles around creation. We look at John Wesley and we look at Methodist care for creation over the generations. Ultimately, we want to get people to the point where they look at the text, they look at the context of the text, they look at their own context, and then they decide, well, now what? Where do I find myself, where do I find myself encouraged? Where do I see um, the church walking with me to some form of action, leading to some action? Why do I say that? Every social principle has within it not only a position, a value, a set of interests that it represents, a set of needs it seeks to meet, but it has some call to action. When you look closely at the social principles, you'll see that it doesn't sort of just leave you there explaining the problem. No, it will either give you a prophetic action 
point of action, a pastoral way of action that's more therapeutic in nature, uh, a problem-solving way of acting in the world. Um, and, and it depends on the issue. It really depends on the issue. If you take one social principle, it'll take you in one direction, another, it'll take you another. Our position on, on, uh, on reproductive health, on abortion, I think is a very pastoral approach. Um, if you look at the death penalty, very different issue having to do with uh, uh, decisions in, in human life, though. Um, the death penalty is a position that, is, that takes, that, that really is a, um, uh, one that's not, not, it's pastoral, yes, but it goes in the direction of, of um, prophetic. It's not, it's going to be a little bit different than the way we approach the issues around abortion or around, um, let's say, uh, what's another one that I would say, um, or sexual assault. That's mm -hmm. the one that I just opened up on. Each, one, each social principle will have a different way of, of calling us to act and respond to the realities of the world. And not, each, not every social principle will have an identical form of action. But they will all have a set of values, a set of interests, a set of needs, and a distinct position that the church has taken. Um, that they hold in common. And, and outside the United States, I think the challenge really is understanding the geography and understanding that history and the, the realities of that community. In the Congo, for example, and uh, the Congo is in the news now, partly because of the, the um, President Kabila um, arguments whether or not he'll run for a third term. There have been riots in the streets. The Catholic Church is quite outspoken. United Methodists have been involved in this as well. Um, there are a number of refugees and displaced persons. And have, they've now moved into eastern part of of Africa, and you have issues around um, of tribal conflicts that are occurring. You have uh, persons who have very different racial ethnic identities coming into contact with one another. Um, in the Congo, you have a situation of conflict between pygmies in the church and people who come from a Bantu ethnic group. People don't think about this, but this is a serious reality. How do you create equity amongst these groups. Well, you can talk about equity, you can talk about reconciliation, you can talk about uh, recovery from violence, and we do that as ministries for church and society, but the social principles sort of give us the language by which we can talk about those realities. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it gives us language that's common language, mm -hmm. rather than, than our approaching the issue based on our own experience. It gives us some common language. And knowing that it is, goes beyond my own experience, but it connects me to a larger world community is liberating for many people who realize I'm not alone in this. I am not alone when it comes to sexual assault. I am not alone when it comes to issues of alcohol and drug abuse. I am not alone when it comes to um, living with AIDS, HIV, or struggling uh, for a living wage and collecting bar collective bargaining. Those are issues that span the globe. They span the globe. We may not always agree on them, but they're not, they're not isolated issues. They're ones that we can find ourselves in. And I think that that for me, when I'm working with groups outside the United States especially, is helping them to find themselves in this text. 
and they realize then, wow, this is this I, this is part of my United Methodist DNA. This is who I am, and um, it point gives, shows me a way forward. Mm-hmm. Man, um, I think that's the best. Uh, <laughs> example and conversation about the social principles I have ever heard. And, right. <laughs> and now it's like, it's totally changed the way I always do them right. and, and the way that I thought about them. And, and when you were talking about what I, I went and just read one, I was like, wow, I never saw that before. Uh, you know, the, the parts that you said about it. And I'm just like, wow, I wish, I wish I would have heard that in seminary, you know, right. Well, you wanted to, you want to take them more seriously. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And, and I think that that's the deal, is it? Like, I remember sitting in a conversation a few years ago uh, with a bishop in a congregation, and it was over the issue of immigration. And the bishops uh, had, had basically, you know, social principles to the T. It was a great explanation, a great thing. And, and I'll never forget the, the, the older man standing up in the room and saying, you know, I've been a United Methodist my whole life, and I've never knew that we believed this. And I don't know if, we, if I can be this way. And, 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 I, and, and at that moment, that's when it hit me that, that these social principles are so important for our congregations to get their hands on and to get to know. Um, and it's not, and I think that that's been the whole tension is that it's not church law, but it's a conversation and a dialogue that can help us grow and stretch our faith. And then when you, when, when you added that global context onto it, 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 it just blew my mind in a way that like, wow, I never thought I, it didn't dawn on me that this whole conversation is brought to the world table. I just assumed it was kind of one of those deals like we've done in the past where it's like, no, you'll just accept this as it is. And you're going to just take what we have to say about it and go from there. But to have that dialogue of, of, of broadening the horizons of, of the conversations uh, of the social principles, it, it just makes it even bigger and huge. That's not just an American yeah. thing that this that's is, right. that, that our social principles are a global thing. And, and as you like, as I was looking at the one I looked at in particular was on gambling and it was just like, wow, um, like, okay. like, you know, that that's an impact on my community and, and how do we respond to that? How can we talk about that? And, um, I just like, like I was listening to this, like, man, this is like, this has to be the best conversation I've ever heard on the social principles <laughs> ever. And and this has to get out there. Because, and right. I'm not to say it for our benefit, but I'm just thinking, right. man, like more churches need to hear what you have had just offered us mm-hmm. uh, that are United Methodists to hear why these things are important. And, and, and I think that would, you know, that, that might make an impact in, in our communities and, and, and it may even, you know, crack, you know, some people may actually open, uh, may buy the book, uh, you know, from <laughs> Cokesbury or, uh, you know, go to their pastor's office and steal their book of discipline and, um, and, and look at those for a change and, and who knows what it may do. And that was kind of like our whole deal with this podcast for Lent is that we wander ways in awareness of this. Um, yeah. So that way people can stretch and grow their faith. And it's not just something um, it's one whole thing to, to like know the facts and to know the theology behind it. But when we can look at that, why, and that, um, mm-hmm. that bigger, like, wow, like I never, like just thinking about what you had said about the principles and, and what they have in them, like that, mm-hmm. that, that change, that's a game changer for me. It is. Good. I mean, even when you, I'll, t- I'll give you an example. And I don't think they were conscious when they did this, when they wrote it, um, when the first uh, principles were written or when the, um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they, when the, when some of this was written, I don't think it was really, honestly, it was just not conscious on, on, on their part. Because if you look at, if you look at even the, let me see where it's at, if it's in the preamble to the social principles or not, but you'll see, okay, yeah, it is actually in the, it's in the preface where it says the social principles, well, as you said, while not considered church law, are a prayerful and thoughtful effort on the part of the General Conference to speak to human issues in a contemporary world from a sound biblical and theological foundation as historically demonstrated in United Methodist traditions. It's a mouthful. It's a long sentence. Um, but whoever wrote it, and I have a sense of who wrote that one, it, it brings up the Western quadrilateral. Mm -hmm. And that's something I want to make sure that we don't lose it in the conversation is... Um, that one sentence in the preface, it, it says the social principles while not concerned church law are a prayerful and thoughtful effort, so reason, right, mm -hmm. on the part of the general conference to speak to human issues in a contemporary world, experience, that's experience, from a sound biblical and theological foundation, so scripture, third part of the quadrilateral, um, contemporary world from a sound biblical and theological foundation as historically demonstrated in our Methodist tradition. So tradition. Mm -hmm. So even in the preface, it's there. It's right. there. It's almost doing the exegesis necessary, right? If you do the exegesis, it, it's not just sort of, it's like, I, 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 there, there are times we need to take the social principle at face value, okay? And we absolutely ought to. On suicide, when I'm working with a group of 13-year-olds um, in our chapel, confirmation kids, who come in and I'm doing an, a game called Agree, Disagree, and I say, read a social principle, ask you if you agree with it. If you don't agree with it, move here. If you agree with it, over here. And I got 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds saying to me, I read our social principle on, social, on suicide that nothing, quoting Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. We do not condemn persons who have committed suicide, taking their own. And I asked them, how many of you know someone's tried to commit suicide? And you got two-thirds of their hands going up? 13-year-olds who don't know me, but who are honest enough in the context of our chapel during a game on the social principles, during a confirmation class to say, this is a reality that my friends and I live through. We need to know what the church actually does say. Uh -huh. We absolutely must. We need to teach it because it's distinct from other church traditions. That's true in the United States. It's absolutely true in Africa where there's more shame and stigma um, there, I won't say more, but there is significant shame and stigma still applied to those who, um, who take their life, uh, contemplate suicide. Um, but that's one example where the language really does matter. Those specific words, I would argue, really matter. However, the majority of the social principles, um, we need to go a little bit further. We need to unpack because they're not as cut and dry. If you look at social principle, for example, on I mean, another one where it is cut and dry would be, I would argue, is on things like bullying. Um, those things have to do with interpersonal power relationships, uh, violence, issues of violence and violation. They're very clear. They're sort of the do's and the don'ts. But where it's less clear is, I think, around issues like the family or around... Um, uh, culture and identity, or around, you know, even in terms of um, 
the natural world, water, air, soil, minerals, plants. It says we affirm these things, but it doesn't say now, well, this is how you're going to live that out. And I think that's part of the reason why we've got um, a revision of the social principles. We want more clarity in terms of, well, what's the next step? Now, what's the call to action? Um, I don't know. I, it, it's, it depends on which section you're looking at, but they are, there's a time to exegete them and there's a time to, from my perspective, to take them to celebrate this is the position of the church. And then there are times to critique them. And I would, I don't want to lose the opportunity to say, you know, to critique some of the social principles that I, I personally do question and I wonder how healthy they are. I mean, our position around, um, uh, uh, around war and peace, the military seems as if we're taking, take, we're looking at both sides, but we're not necessarily saying, well, this is where the church stands. Issues around human sexuality, I think, are ambiguous in many places because we affirm human rights on the one hand and civil rights on the other. But then over here, we condemn uh, people based on their identity and the relationships they're in. Uh, there's this ambiguity needs to be reconciled. You know, um, there are places in the social principles where we say grace is something great. Grace is actually a word that's used frequently in the social principles theologically. Um, how do, what do we even mean by grace? How do we understand grace? Uh, we don't go into the detail perhaps that, that we need to. So there's a role for clergy and laity to take a look at the theological language that's in here and to, and to unpack it, to unpack it further, because it's not enough to simply read them. That said, I will give you another example. I was serving a church where my chair, the, the chair of our trustees was much more traditional than I was, more conservative politically. And he said, he, but he always loved the social principles. And he said, even when I disagree with them, we need to have them available in the narthex of the church, along with all the other literature from the, that represent the United Methodist Church. And I said, great, we'll do it. So I put them in the pews, and during a wedding, um, which was I, I officiated at, with someone who was Catholic and someone who was Methodist, I found like 150 social principles were gone. They took them. They, 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 it's like all these Catholics are, all these Methodists are, and I'm thinking, you know, so as soon as my church trustees found out, he was like, Neil, you need to get more social principles hmm. because we have to always have them available in the pews. Hmm. I have heard stories of people going door to door, um, and this is the truth, uh, someone, a Korean American uh, colleague who was building a new church, starting a new church, and going door to door, they talk about their church, and they would bring the social principles with them. And they would hand them out in Korean because they knew in the community they were working in, which was a uh, struggling economic community, that a lot in here around economic justice and around migration and around issues of race and racial justice would appeal to them. And so they didn't, they didn't hide from them. They weren't, they weren't shy. They said, this is who we are. If you, if you understand our hymn, hymnody, if you understand our approach towards scripture and you're going to read the Bible, you understand our polity and how we build community together. Well, this is our ethics. These are our theological ethics. This is how we try to form people theologically and ethically. And they don't, they didn't hide it. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and going off that, you, you told that story when we were there uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you shared that, that wedding story with us. And uh, Melissa, my colleague from Montana, uh, that was there with me. We, we talked about that and, and we really 
coming home, it's like, what can, what can we do? You know, we're, we're in a huge state, you know, we're, we're about to begin a huge conference. Yeah. How do we, how do we work within our context and bring some of this back? And, and it was, it, we, we kind of jumped off with that idea of what if we get at least one copy, if not multiple copies in the pews of every Methodist church in Montana? Uh, just to have them available and and there so that people can can look at them and and grab onto them because the you know we I I believe that presence is a big part of what we do in in simply having the social principles present like you say opens up the door for opportunity and um, and so that that we're kind of jumping off that off that idea and what does this look like and and going off of that that idea of presence I, I want to maybe shift gears a little bit, but not too much, but talk about your physical presence. Okay. Uh, where you're actually located there on Capitol Hill, because I think it's beautiful. Um, and, but, but there's some things you do with your presence there with your sign outside and then physically with what you guys do uh, yeah. on, on, on campus or on Capitol Hill. Right. So thank you. So we, the location here, and I'll give you a little bit of background, is the United Methodist Building. It's the only non-governmental building uh, on Capitol Hill. So if you go online and you, you see a picture of us, what it doesn't show necessarily, it really doesn't show is the proximity to the Capitol. That you can walk um, five minutes in, actually two minutes in any direction, and you'll be in a governmental building. So to my left, when I look out my window, is the United States Senate. Looking at it right now. Right behind my head is the United States Capitol. So I can go to the Capitol in five minutes. The United States Supreme Court is over here to in front of me. So we were built before the United States Supreme Court was built, 1923. The Supreme Court was built in 1935. Um, it's, it was built uh, for several reasons. Number one, um, 1920s, we were talking about uh, the right for women to vote and making sure that, that, that the right for suffrage was practiced and ensured state by state. Child labor issues, turn of the century for those, those first decades was a priority for us, it still is a priority for us. Um, issues around uh, temperance and the growing temperance movement was there as distinct from prohibition. The Methodist Church really wasn't prohibition, it was more temp about temperance. How do we look at the, the root causes of and the access to addictive, you know, distilled spirits, so alcohol, and the effects of alcohol addiction on the family, especially migrant families coming from Europe. Um, and then uh, gambling was another issue. And then prize fighting, which most people forget about, prize fighting still on the books for United Methodist women. So the, the building was built for, by dollars and, set, um, uh, you know, small donations from everywhere from Kansas to, you know, Kansas, to Missouri, all over the all over the country, people were Sunday school classes, Bible studies were willing to give to these causes, recognizing that um, we needed uh, a place for that would address issues around public moral. The language at the time was public morals, and not just one issue, but the many issues that the church needed to be in the public square. So it's a really unique location. I mean, it's amazing. You you've got. We, we're also, we, we play a hospitable presence, to, to use the language of presence, to many different groups. In this building, you won't only find the General Board of Church and Society, the General Commission on Religion and Race. <clears throat> You'll also find uh, the National Council of Churches, 
You'll find the Franciscans have an office here. You will find the Islamic Society for North America, so most of the community here. Um, you'll find our Jewish sisters and brothers. Reformed Judaism has a building right next door to us. The Lutheran Church, the United Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, Episcopal Church are all in this building. So what began as a particular United Methodist presence to Capitol Hill in a tumultuous time of growing immigration, growing uh, 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 social uh, challenges, oppressive realities that the church wanted to respond to. Um, it's moved, it's, it's maintained that, but moved beyond that to be much more inclusive in terms of our vision of peace with justice and, and, and wholeness, that we know that we can't do it alone. We need to do it ecumenically. We need to do it in our faith. And so we welcome many people into this building. Uh, the original issues that the church, that the building was built on, child labor, uh, temperance, suffrage, is now expanded. So environmental justice, issues of civil and human rights. Um, Dr. King in the 1960s, the March on Washington, uh, organized out of this building with the help of the National Council of Churches and, and our agency. Um, you know, you there were, this was a segregated city. So how are you going to organize something like a March on Washington using pay phones, which is what he did. You know, he where do you, where's the porta potty go? Who's going to be on which part of the agenda? It's like, how do you get these thousands of people moving? So these things that, that we take for granted for these historical, uh, monumental uh, movements in history, anti-nuclear movement, um, liberation movements in Latin America, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, um, all had some support and presence in this space. They had presence in this space. Mm. Um, Haiti, um, Father Aristide, the first democratically elected president of Haiti, um, who was in exile, found a space here in this building so that he could work with uh, work with other exi exilees to, uh, for democracy in, in Haiti. So Washington Office on Latin America, my friend Joe Eldridge, who ran that, ended up becoming the chaplain for American University after being a missionary in Latin America, um, in Chile, in other hot spots in, in Central America and Latin America, realized it was not enough for him to do the work there with the people. He had to represent them here where policies are being made. So he, he founded the Washington Office on Latin America. So in a sense, it's that ministry of presence is, um, is probably our greatest gift to, uh, greatest gift of the church to our, our global society. It really is. And, 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 it's a, and it was a very conscious decision that has been maintained for many generations now. So this is 1923 when it was built. This is 2018. If you, are, if you go in front of our building, there's a sign there. And so on the one hand, you'd have people going talking with legislators, having legislators meet with us here, looking at, civil, uh, uh, looking at citizen groups that are coming to the building, education work here. But then the physical presence itself lends itself to, um, to, to re-imaging what the church stands for. What do I mean by that? So you gave a great example in our, in our uh, sign on the front of the building. Um, Corey, Senator Cory Booker loves our sign. So Senator from New Jersey, outspoken on immigration issues. He loves to retweet or tweets and then retweet like our sign because it'll say, you know, all immigrants are human beings. All immigrants require are, are deserving of dignity. Healthcare is a human right. And 
to see that in front of a building which doesn't look like a church, but when you see the sign saying United Methodist, you realize, um, but it's owned by, that it says related to a church, is a powerful witness. And there's not a day that goes by when I'm not looking out the window when someone is taking a picture of themselves in front of the Methodist building. Because they're, I don't even know if they're Methodist. Baptist <laughs> <laughs> for all I can. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Muslim, Jewish, I don't, Buddhist. Uh, but they, they, say, they feel some sense of an affinity, a connection. If they're a person of faith and they see that and they're like, wow. This is a, another example would be last year at Lent, my colleague, Jeannie Ree, who works on civil and human rights issues, um, major focus for us is on mass incarceration and the death penalty. So she arranged for the Methodist building to be one of the stations of the cross in Washington, D.C. And so uh, we had, there was an artist based out of London who was working with other nonprofits to create public um, spaces for uh, Stations of the Cross. And he wanted this to be the first one on this, of the stations. And so what an artist did was, we secured an artist from the Children's Defense Fund, which does advocacy on favor of children, the needs of children, started by Marion Wright Edelman, uh, long-term advocate for kids, and a, a gentleman who had been incarcerated, I believe for 22, 23 years on death row, and then was exonerated. It was found innocent. He didn't commit the crime. The DNA showed it. He had become an artist in, while he was incarcerated. He began working with the Children's Defense Fund. And what he did is he created life-size images of people, of sort of mannequins wearing uh, orange jumpsuits, and placed them across our lawn and in front of our building. Um, with the statistics of how many people are incarcerated, how many people are in death row in the United States. Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, uh, <laughs> yeah, incarcerates in more women yeah. than anywhere else in the world, yeah. right? So this is a challenge we have. This is our common challenge. We all should, and in other countries, when they look at us, they wonder what is going on that allow that that, that perpetuates this. It's it, they they wonder so. So all during Lent, we had these folks in these different positions, some with their arms outstretched like this, no faces, but wearing jumpsuits like, jumpsuits like this, some lying flat like this, and the statistics and showing how many people are incarcerated by state, how many people are on death row, how many people have been exonerated. We're finding more and more people are exonerated that, are on that should not have been on death row. Um, and it was a public witness. It was a real public witness to stand in solidarity with all people, all people who are suffering from a system that is broken, a mass incarceration system that is broken, and, uh, and certainly those who are being executed by the state. A position, the United Methodist social principles are very clear that we oppose the death penalty. We believe that it, it, uh, it, that it denies the possibility for reconciliation. It denies the possibility for, um, uh, by giving the power to the state, denies the possibility for reconciliation between God and, and, and persons. And it's not the answer, not the answer. So here was a public expression. Another one is right before Christmas during Advent, when the argument around the Dreamers and the Dream Act 
was uh, coming to the, the floor of Congress, we had an organization um, uh, that does art, sort of installation art, called Inside Out, take pictures of people, blow them up like four feet wide on sort of rice paper and plaster them on our Methodist building. And so you could go and say, oh, that's Bishop so-and-so, that's so-and-so, there's Neil. And I said, I'm a dreamer too. We're all dreamers, we're all dreamers. So you look around the Methodist building, it was wrapped with faces larger than life, all different people, just, just like the three of us. And we recognize our common humanity. We recognize that we all are dreamers, that it's not about scapegoating a particular group of people, and that we need to look deeper into the issue around immigration and a broken immigration system and not vilify and scapegoat, especially young people, especially young people who, um, who are, you know, who are migrants. It's, 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 so we try to use this space in creative ways like that. Another example I'll give you, and this is sort of the inside of the building. I remember a year or two ago, a group of Buddhist monks had walked across the United States and uh, they were walking for peace. And they ended in our, um, our chapel for a prayer service. And I remember leading the, helping lead the service with them. And uh, they were there with their saffron robes. And I thought, only in the Methodist, where else will they find this hospital? I hope they'll find it in Methodist churches, but in lieu of a Methodist church on Capitol Hill, this is a place that's hospitable for them, where they are welcome to come and pray for peace, especially in the regions of the world where they represented. And they had come uh, peacefully marching, marching across the country. And they found their final home, not in a Buddhist uh, temple, but in, or a sanctuary, but in, a, in the Methodist building. And I'll never forget that that we, we were, our goal at that, that moment was to show them deep hospitality and welcome. So I think these are the things that are possible in any United Methodist Church location, honestly. And that's my dream is that with the congregate number of local churches we've got, we have 43,000 local churches in the United Methodist Church. Even if 1% were to really expand their vision of what their public space can look like, even without doing anything, simply by how they represent themselves beyond the church sign, or inclusive of the church sign, but, but going further, what kind of a difference could we make, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's all about asking ourselves how, that, that question that you asked earlier on of how, how do we belong in this community and, and do, do we give people the opportunity to have dignity? You know, do we bring dignity to the community with this? Um, and that's what these social principles cause us to do or, or should cause us to do is ask that question. You yeah. know, how do we belong and how do we do it with dignity? Yeah. Um, and, and that's huge. Yeah, it's man, huge. You know, I was thinking, um, as you were talking, I was like, man, we, we just need to have you on for the rest of Lent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you've done such a great job. I talk way too much. Thing. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no, 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 like, no, no, no. like, I was thinking, it's like, Man, we're we're starting or we're our second week is with Neil and like I don't know if it can get any better than this, right? <laughs> On the <laughs> same well, and, and I was like and I was like, man, oh, will. can yeah. can we uh can we have you back on? You know, and, and, and I wanna <laughs> extend that invitation to you. Like anytime you wanna come back or if there's something that you'd like to share uh, yeah. with our listeners, we'd be glad to have you on at any time. And you know, we thank you for your time and we know that oh, you've got a, a full schedule and um man, I, I feel like I I I've 
I, I didn't know I would expect to learn so much today. And I'm like, right. I'm really excited. And, um, and uh, you know, we, we thank you for your time, Neil. And, um, you know, anytime that you're, you're more than welcome to come back anytime. Uh, and I send that invitation to you. And um, mm-hmm. we want to encourage our listeners. Um, if you're not United Methodist, I would encourage you to, to, to at least glance at our social principles. And if you Google social principles, United Methodist Church, you'll find them very easily. Um, and there's all sorts of ways to access those uh, through our global board of church and society. And they're pretty easy to find. Um, and, um, and so we, we encourage you to take a look at those and, and see where they call you to action or see where you can say, yeah, I can, I can hang my hat on that one. Or maybe not that one, but let, let's have some dialogue on that. And maybe get uh, the study that's in the back of the book there is, is a phenomenal uh, group study to have a group of people to gather and, and, and work through those together and, and would encourage people uh, in churches and small groups to look at that. Because we have a couple of small groups that actually listen to us and utilize mm-hmm. us. And so we want to point you in that direction and, and loan that resource to you. And um, we wouldn't be able to do all, all this without our listeners. And so we're thankful for you and would encourage our listeners to um, go uh, on whatever they listen to this on, uh, whether it be Google Play or um, iTunes podcast thing or whatever place that you listen to us and uh, there, there are many avenues in which this will be uh, shared and some that we know about and some that we don't know about and we just encourage you to to give us a good review and, and give us five stars or whatever their system of, of good is make <laughs> us look good uh, we'd encourage you to go to our website at beardedtheologians.com and, and pick up um, some bearded theologians gear that we have um, and then uh, look at some of our really cool uh, um, pot or blog posts that we have out there. We've got some really good blog posts on uh, different topics. And I, I know we've got a couple of on social principles coming. We've asked a couple of people to write for us uh, and reflection about those. And, um, and so we're looking forward to sharing those with you and uh, we just give thanks for all of our listeners. And so Neil, once again, I, I thank you for your time and uh, you know, you're more than welcome to come back anytime. And so uh, I'll take you up on it. Good. I, I, appreciate, it. I really appreciate your hospitality. Um, I do encourage people to take a look at, you know, there may be one social, there may be one issue you're wondering, I'm wondering if the church says anything about this. Um, go to the social principles and one issue may lead you to another and you may see yourself reflected in it. You may not. And that's cool too. If you want, if you argue, you enter into a conversation, a dialogue, then I think they're doing their part because it's through that dialogue and that conversation, that communication that you know, growth happens and conscientization happens. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, this is a gift that we have to the church, but it's a gift that the church offers to the world in the social principles. And uh, I want to thank you both for your hospitality and for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And uh, um, I'll keep praying for you both and and your listeners uh, during this time of Lent, especially as we, we have much to mourn and recover from in terms of violence in our own communities, um, especially toward children. Uh, that's unacceptable and avoidable. And it's a truth. That when I was in Ghana last week, I'll just share this with you if I may. Um, I was with all our African bishops and then 160 district superintendents, like all the district superintendents for Africa, after the first half hour of introductions, they said, we need to stop because we need to pray. Mm-hmm. What happened in Florida and what's happening in the United States and the number of children who are being uh, crucified, who are being killed in our, the schools in America. These are our sisters and brothers who are very conscious of what happens. Our eyes, they're, they're watching us. Our church, the church is watching us. 
So how we approach it, these, these realities, because they're not issues, these are human realities, matters. And we are not so separate from one another. What happens in one part of the world absolutely does affect another. And uh, the social principles are of a way of, I think, reducing the distance between us. Um, and the word it has power. And so thank you for, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. So for the Radio Theologians, I'm Matt Franks. And I'm Zach Bechtold. Thanks for checking us out. Thank you for listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope that you share our content online uh, through Facebook and social media. And we hope that you check out our uh, Beardcast store at beardedtheologians.com and pick up some great Bearded Theologians gear. We hope you have a good day.